Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to the writer Isaac Fitzgerald. He wrote the New York Times bestselling memoir, Dirtbag, Massachusetts. And in it, he talks about his very unconventional and often difficult childhood, including how he and his friends deeply misunderstood the point of the film Fight Club, and also how his perspective on his parents' fraught marriage has evolved over time. The book is super honest and revealing about Isaac uh, and his family. You're going to stick around for that. Then we're going to hear some stand-up from the very funny comedian Carmen Lagala on how her love of women's basketball led her to break up a teenage romance via the internet. All that plus music from No No Boy. We've got a fascinating show coming up for you, so don't go anywhere. I'll get started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Have you been studying your random cities in America this week? Oh, every day. Like it's the rosary. <laughs> You're like Rocky. You get up, you crack four eggs into a glass, and you break That's out right. an atlas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, good, because it's time for us to play another round of station location identification examination. Are you feeling ready? So ready. This is where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's trying to figure out the place that I am talking about. These are a couple of really great clues. Okay, this place is the seat of the county that produces 95% of all the ginseng exported from the United States. And if you get this one, you can officially retire after this week. I don't even know what ginseng is. Is it mined or grown? Like I, It looks like, I think it's kind of like a root of some kind. Oh, Okay. Okay, let me go with uh, hint number two. Maybe that'll help. Sorry. (laughs) It's home to the largest curling facility in the country, like as in the sport curling. Oh. Now, I'm going to help you. It's not Minnesota. Uh, Fargo, North Dakota. (laughs) Uh, A little more over towards Wisconsin. Wisconsin, Wisconsin. (laughs) That's right. You were thinking of Wausau, Wisconsin. (laughs) Where we are on the air on Wisconsin Public Radio. That's right. That's where the ginseng is being exported from, (laughs) I am told by this script in front of me. So shout out to everybody listening in Wausau. Thanks for tuning in to Livewire. Uh, Should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. 
From PRX, it's... This week, writer Isaac Fitzgerald. The things I don't want to write, the things I don't want to talk about, the things that I don't want to look directly at, those are usually where the most important stories are. Stand-up comedian Carmen Lagala. I don't know what sport uh, you're a fan of, but what are you doing in the off-season, huh? Are you breaking up children online? (laughs) With music from No-No Boy and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in all over the country, including in Wausau, Wisconsin. We have a really, really interesting show in store for everyone this week. Of course, we asked the listeners a question, like we always do. We asked, tell us something you completely misunderstood as a young person, Uh, and that is because one of our guests this week, Isaac Fitzgerald, he writes in his book about how he and his teenage friends really, really misunderstood that Fight Club, the movie Fight Club, was a satire. (laughs) They just took it as a sign to form their own actual Fight Club. So we're asking the listeners to commiserate about things they didn't quite fully grasp when they were younger. We're going to hear those responses coming up in a little bit. First, though, of course, we got to start things off with... The best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is some good news happening somewhere out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, uh, I love this story. It comes from far, far away from where both you and I are over in Bangalore in India. I didn't know this about the city of Bangalore. Uh, but apparently it's just notorious for its traffic. And there's like Mm. a bunch of TikToks about it. And there is a doctor, a gastroenterology surgeon named Govind Nandakumar, who was stuck in this notorious traffic. Unfortunately, he had a surgery to perform a gallbladder operation, and he knew that the patient was prepped and ready. And I don't know from surgery, but sometimes that prep can take days, right? You got to fast or you got to drink something. Mm -hmm. So this person had, had probably gone through a lot to get ready for surgery. And Dr. Nanda Kumar also knew that there were a bunch of other patients waiting. And so he just got out of his car and started running. (laughs) <laughs> he ran something like three kilometers, which is a what? little under two miles. In presumably his like doctorly outfit, whatever that looks like. Yeah. In my brain, he's got on like full on surgical scrubs, which is probably right? not how it works. No, it's probably not very <laughs> Like the sterile. mask and the little hat and the gloves. It also feels very like this is what happens in a rom-com, except instead of running to tell the person that he loves that he really loves them. He's running to take someone's gallbladder out. Instead of Catherine Heigl, it's a yes. gallbladder. <laughs> yes, exactly. The object of his affection. Um, but, you know, uh, this is a pretty impressive uh, member of the medical community. Absolutely. I think. Uh, 18 years of service, 1,000 wow. successful surgeries, and hopefully only one that he had to sprint toward right. in order to get it done. <laughs> like you're appreciative if the surgeon went extra, the extra mile to get there. But then if they're drenched in sweat, 
<laughs> you're like, kind of like, well, okay, let's take a minute. Everybody cool down here. But I've got a story actually I saw that's also related to people going above and beyond in the medical community. It involves a Spirit Airlines flight that was heading from Pittsburgh, hey. your old stomps, Woo. Elena, to Orlando, Florida. And a three-month-old baby stopped breathing on this flight. Whoa. Just completely stopped breathing. And uh, her parents were, as you might imagine, just absolutely terrified and started just asking if there was a doctor on board or anyone who could help. And luckily, there was a nurse sitting a few rows behind them named uh, Tamara Panzino. And she immediately jumped into action. She knew exactly what to do. She um, did basically uh, massage on the baby's chest and legs and got this baby back to breathing again. Wow. I've seen a video of this, probably on TikTok, don't judge me, where the entire plane is in like rapturous applause because this was up near the front of the plane. Can you imagine you're on a plane and a baby stops breathing? And the nurse was like seated directly behind them? Like really close to them, close enough that she just jumped right up, immediately started applying sort of medical care to the baby and got the baby breathing again. The baby like takes a breath in and is like, okay. The parents said this is nothing like this had ever happened with this child. It was totally out of the blue for them. It's just like a very heartwarming story and also so fortunate that there was somebody on that flight who knew what to do. So everyone's lauding Nurse Panzino as a hero. I feel like there you got to get some free miles out of this, right? If you're like a nurse, if you save a life on a spirit airplane, I mean, at least maybe they don't charge you for your luggage anymore. Yeah. <laughs> or like on your next flight, like they'll check your bags for free. Whatever like the, the gold standard of the spirit airline experience is, it should go now to Tamara Panzino. They should invent first class on spirit just, cr- <laughs> just for her. She just gets her own row. <laughs> they just take row. the front row of coach, <laughs> they block it out, and they just like say, this is for you, uh, Tamara, after your amazing life-saving efforts. And that, my friends, is the best news that we heard all week. All right, let's uh, welcome our first guest on over to the program. He frequently appears on the Today Show, where he reviews and recommends books for them. He's also the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate. And his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, and lots of other places. The New York Times book review called his new memoir, Dirtbag Massachusetts, an endearing and tattered catalog of one man's transgressions and the ways in which it is our sins, far more than our virtues, that make us who we are. Isaac Fitzgerald, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I do not think I have heard one interview with you regarding this book that has not started in the exact place that we are also going to start because it's the beginning of the book and it kind of perfectly sets the tone. Uh, you write, your parents were married when they had you. They were just married to different people at the time. Uh, what I'm curious about is, um, do you remember when you learned that fact and, and what that felt like for you? Yes. I, I mean, again, the whole book is about stories and the stories we were told and the stories we tell ourselves. But I can kind of remember the first time I heard the story, which was I was pretty young. My parents, I think, were rather progressive. Again, they were part of the Catholic Worker, which is this Catholic group, but it's a very progressive Catholic group. And so I think they wanted me to have an understanding of who my siblings were. And so I had these half-siblings. So at a very young age, they tried to explain to me that they were married when they had me just to different people. And part of that 
explanation was because they would show me photographs of their wedding that I was actually at. They got married when I was three years old and there's a truck that's beat to crap that's just covered in toilet paper with like just <laughs> married cans hanging off the side. So that was like the the story that was told to me at a very young age. And at that time, I felt a warmth around it. It seemed like a nice, you know, you just, you're a young kid, you're seeing pictures of people being happy. Both of my siblings, I loved them so much. I looked up to them so much. So there was almost a warmth to the story. It was only in a few, like a few years later when things started to be a little bit more rocky that I started to understand, okay, that maybe marriage had consequences. Maybe my existence was part of what caused those consequences. And maybe I'd actually made my parents not happy, but unhappy. And that is when, especially I started having some real serious conversations with my mom at far too young an age that it started to kind of curdle on me. And one of those consequences was that your parents' parents were pretty upset with them for kind of exploding the lives that they had before this because they were married Was that part of what led to your parents and you, the three of you, kind of living amongst this um, community of people who were unhoused while your parents were working at this place in Boston? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So basically, my parents lived with friends for a little while, uh, even before they were married. And again, these are memories of joy for me because I was surrounded by this rather loving community while we were in the city. It's only later when we made this move to kind of a a, a lonely North Central Massachusetts that things took a turn. But we would live with friends, and and basically, my mother uh, had had a son who was my brother, and my father had his daughter. Who was my sister, and their families did not take kindly to the decisions that they made, especially on my mother's side. So all of a sudden, there really was a lack of support. And of course, uh, their partners basically were like, all right, get out. And they also lost their kids in that move. So it did become just the three of us. And at that point, they were involved with the Catholic Church. They were involved with the Catholic worker. They had friends who worked in the community. And after about a year of living with someone who's very special to the family, uh, this man named Doc Holliday, he basically put them in touch with the Catholic worker. And that is when we moved into Haley House, which is this incredible soup kitchen. We eventually end up at John Larry House, which is basically this apartment complex that's run by the Catholic worker. And it was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. I was surrounded by so many characters and so many loving people. But on paper, I know it looks like it's like, oh, he grew up in an unhoused living situation. That must have been so difficult. But those were actually the best years of my life. We're talking to Isaac Fitzgerald. By the way, his latest book is Dirtbag, Massachusetts. You write in the book about how things really shifted for you around the age of eight when you actually left that environment that seems on paper to be fairly chaotic. And I want to talk about that more in a moment. First, though, we got to take this quick break here on Livewire from PRX. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we are talking to Isaac Fitzgerald. His uh, latest book is Dirtbag, Massachusetts, uh, detailing his life, although it's it's described as a, a confessional. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a moment because it's not strictly a memoir. I mean, it really gets into a lot of personal stuff that um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed, actually, that you were able to write as honestly about a lot of this stuff as, as you were, Isaac. 
We were talking, though, before the break about how you spent your early years living in Boston uh, in an environment where there was uh, a, a lot of people that were very marginalized. Your parents were working with, with people who were unhoused. And then you and your mom basically move out to uh, a town in kind of out in the middle of nowhere next to her parents, who it sounds like were still not okay with how you had come into the world because your existence had torpedoed your mom's existing marriage, basically. What was that like for you to go out there? For me, that is really where I learned what we're talking about with that opening question. That is where I learned to feel real shame around my own very existence, basically, which was understanding that maybe my mother had had a better life before I came into hers. And I really, really internalized that. In Boston, there was community, there was camaraderie. It was uh, a very impoverished life, but it was actually at its heart still a very social life. When we moved to North Central Massachusetts, I want to be very clear, this is a beautiful part of the state and there's a lot of community out there and there's a lot of pride out there. But me and my mother weren't a part of that. We were very isolated. And so that is the first feeling that I think of or that the emotion that I feel when I think of that time in my life is loneliness Mm -hmm. and kind of the only other people in her life and therefore in my life in that time were her parents who lived next door, who were very clear in how much they disapproved of the choices that she'd made and how her, her life had basically gone since that. There was this sense of my mom, I think, as so many of us have in our hearts, she had this drive to get out of her hometown. And there she was years later with her parents kind of getting to say, I told you so, Mm -hmm. right there living next door. So that just created a very difficult environment where my mother didn't have many people to turn to other than me. And that's when we started having these conversations where she was telling me things that an eight-year-old is not supposed to know. I became a crutch for her. And looking back on it, I can see that I was basically raising her instead of her raising me. Mm. We're talking to Isaac Fitzgerald about his latest book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, about his Uh, life growing up and and his young adulthood out in the world. Um, Another thing that you write about in the book is that violence was uh, part of your life, violence from your parents directed at you, sometimes from you back at your parents, and then also you and your friends, like uh, forming a fight club. Like you went to see the movie Fight Club, and (laughs) it sounds like you kind of walked out of the theater and was like, okay, we've found it. Uh, Was that you trying to get control of the violence that seemed like it was just kind of like in the air? Because I grew up in kind of a a rough part of the town that I grew up in. And I just remember violence was always like around the corner. Like if it was like an older kid wanted to beat you up or some kid from another school, you're always just kind of trying to figure out, am I going to get tested today? Mm. Like it really does a number on your brain. No, but that's exactly right. Violence, especially in our households, and I'm not just speaking for myself, but so many of the children that I grew up with, it was, it could roll in like a storm. That's a perfect way to put it. It always felt like it was just around the corner. So you had no idea where it was coming from. And so when we started our fight clubs after watching the movie Fight Club, we were grasping. Of course, we wouldn't have said this at the time. At the time, we would have just said, oh, that looked fun as hell. And like, right. Brad Pitt looks cool. Tyler Durden. I, seems yeah, like the coolest I want to wear dude aviator sunglasses that I stole from the gas station. <laughs> but in hindsight, I can so clearly see that we were desperate to control the violence in some form. This was our way of 
taking its power away, just creating a space where we all consented to it. And therefore, it was okay. The other thing I'll say about it is I also think we were desperate for friendship, for a relationship, for camaraderie, dare I say it, even love that we maybe weren't getting in our homes. And it's so clear to me now, of course, that book and then the movie that it's based on is a, is satire. It's trying to point a <laughs> finger at so many different toxic aspects of masculinity and how we're taught to be men in society. But when you're 16, that just goes right over your right. head. And again, we're just like, oh yeah, here we go. End of the world, <laughs> want it. Fighting, yes, and but but in a way, I, I really do look back on it fondly. Well, I had read that you kind of wanted this book when you started out to be, you've got a big section on the band, The Hold Steady, and that you were setting out to write a series of essays that were largely about pop culture, but then it sounds like every time you were trying to write about pop culture, you needed to delve into your childhood to give some context, and then that eventually told you, well, no, the book is actually about growing up and about my life, essentially. That's absolutely right. For a very long time, if if the three of us were at a party, I would tell you the story of my childhood, and then I would tell you I will never write about it. Mm. That was I was so clear that that was not something I was ever going to write about. And, you know, we could unpack that all day, but that's for therapy, not for radio. <laughs> but at the end of the day, when I sold this book, it was, it was supposed to be kind of like pop culture through a little bit of my own personal experience, a little bit through that lens, but nothing in the, in the confessional that this book ended up being. And, and the reason that happened was I kept trying to write these essays and I kept finding that I'd write Three paragraphs. Well, to understand that, you got to understand that. Then three more. Well, to understand that, there's this thing that happened with my dad. And then I would look at it and I try to cut it all out. I try to, I was like, okay, that's the private stuff. Take that away. And then I realized I was weakening these pieces. That's when I called my editor up. At that point, I'd already sold the book probably two years before that. And I said, hey, I think this is going to be about my childhood. To which my editor responded, yeah, yeah, I've been waiting for you to figure that out. Um, and, 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 but I'm so happy that I did, which is like, you know, I don't have a lot of lessons. Like, I think everyone can come to writing or making art in their own way. I don't think there's any tried and true way. But one thing I will say that has at least been true for me is the things I don't want to write the things I don't want to talk about, the things that I don't want to look directly at, those are usually where the most important stories are. It's so interesting. You said at the very beginning of our conversation that the it ended up that the book is about storytelling. I just wondered if you could say a little more about that. Like in, in what ways are all these different parts of your life and your time in San Francisco? And how are those framed as stories and stories that people tell each other in your mind now that you finish the book? No, and, and now that it is, it exists as a story itself, which let's be honest, is not even the whole, you know, my mother and my father have actually been incredibly supportive of this book. Cool. But I have this moment uh, when my mom first read the book. She's a very smart woman. I told her, I was like, you don't have to read it. You don't have to look at it. We can pretend it doesn't exist. She, of course, read it in a night. <laughs> she had a lot of questions. But, you know, one of the early ones first on was just... Where's all the canoeing? Like, where's all the camping? You know, come on. Where's, we did some fun stuff. We did some fun stuff, too. And, and I realized in that moment, and I, and I explained it to her. I said, listen, the, the truth is, like, think of it like a block of wood. Think about it like a log. And, of course, Mom, you're going to carve a much different statue 
out of that log that I'm going to carve out of it, right? The, the whole truth is there, but we can't put the whole log in the thing. So you're going to carve out something that probably has a little more canoeing, probably a little <laughs> more camping, but less maybe of this stuff that I'm actually focusing on. And I'm very lucky in that she really understood that in that moment. But to that point, this book is in of itself a story, which is to say not the whole truth. These are the things that I decided to focus on. These are the things I decided to highlight. So part of the book part of the spirit of it, part of what I only found through writing, it's not something I set out to do, was recognizing how the stories that were told to me as a young child, very, very early, full of warmth and love, then in the difficult times with my mother, jarring to the point of being scarring, to being incredibly hard, to being things that I carried when I didn't even realize I was carrying them, those were the stories that were told to me and they were the stories through which I told myself the story of who I was. Mm -hmm. And it was only through years of trying to run away from it, ignore it, and eventually, thankfully, through the help of therapy, look directly at it, that I started being able to tell myself my own stories. So that's the beautiful thing for me about reading, about writing, about books in general, is that they are these things that can make us feel less alone in the world, they are, they are these incredible pieces of technology, if you want to call it that. We, we see things that we maybe don't even know about ourselves reflected on the page, or we feel things that we think only we have thought, and we see them right there on the page. It makes us feel so much less alone in the world. While at the same time, you have to acknowledge that other people have their versions of the story too. My mother's dirtbag Massachusetts would probably look very different than my dirtbag Massachusetts, but I want to make space and room for all of these different stories. I think that's incredible that you're saying your parents have read the book, which again is just really unflinching. I mean, you describe, and that they're that they're accepting of it. And, and, you know, I'm sure, like you said, they've got their own version of those events, but they can at least appreciate. I mean, they also sound like they're uh, lovers of literature and books. That's where you got it from. So if that's in their personality, they can appreciate what this book is. I mean, you tell this one story of like, you're moving your father out to the part of Massachusetts where you and your mom have been living and you're in different cars. And he basically tries to lose you and your mom on the freeway so he can go visit his mistress. Mm hmm for one last time. Why do you think they stayed together with so much chaos and infidelity and trauma? Was it for you? That's such a great question. I'll tell you, if it was, I appreciate their efforts. But if anybody had bothered to ask me at the time, I would have prayed for divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that is the God's honest truth. It's, it's okay. People get divorced all the time. Why not just put a stop to this? And I think there's a lot of different reasons. One, I do think they love each other very much. I think, I think it's, it's possible for people to have incredibly hard times and still love each other. And, I, and this is a big part of it too, is I think when you're young, everything feels so big. Four years is half your life when you're eight years old. That's almost everything you know, which for a child, it feels really big. For an adult, it just feels almost like a blip. Mm -hmm. And that's it's one of the first things my mom said to me when she read it. She said, I'm so sorry, which I felt like I've been waiting to hear my whole life. And then she said, I had no idea you were carrying this. And it's so clear to me that she wanted to believe that I had just put it all behind just in the very same way that she had put it all behind. But to get to the point of why they're still married, I do. I believe they really love each other. I think they loved each other back then, as complicated and difficult as that time period was. Now that I am approaching 40, I'm so happy they have each other. I, I'm watching them grow old. They are some of the world's best grandparents 
to my siblings' children. I'm so happy they're still together. I wanted to ask you, kind of as we wrap this up, about the cover of the book. So it's it looks like it's a reference to what maybe people would call like the power fist, this very iconic kind of form of resistance. It has a whole lot of different meanings and representations. But the cover of this book, it's like that fist is is crossing its fingers. And I'm just wondering, is that a sort of a message from this book about an almost like a radical or like aggressive form of hope? I love that reading of that. That's incredible. That's yes. I'm just going to say yes because you nailed it. But but no, I, no, I have not articulated it that way. But I think that is at the core of what I was trying to get at. Um, and the crossed fingers for me is very much about cross your fingers. Let's hope. Good luck. But then I went and actually researched it. It actually comes from Roman times back before it was a Christian empire. They basically would ask people if they were Christian. And you would cross your fingers behind oh. your back when you said no, asking forgiveness from God for lying. Which, if you remember, as a kid, you could use to tell a lie oh, yeah. when you mm-hmm. cross your back. Oh, yeah. So that was part. I was thinking cross fingers for good luck. But then I remembered it. In a way, it is also cross your fingers is is linked to religion. So I was interested in that, the faith component of the book. And is also linked to am I telling a story or not? So mm-hmm. that for me, was part of it. It's also very much a punk rock poster from like the Zeitgeist bar that I worked at. Uh They only had black and white Xeroxes. Uh, But I'm going to end with your answer because I'm (laughs) going to steal that, my man, and I'm going to use it from here on out. Yeah, I would like to believe that this book is about radical hope and that that cover really does a beautiful job of showing that. Well, it is an intriguing cover and an even more intriguing book once people dive into it. It's Dirtbag, Massachusetts. Isaac Fitzgerald, thanks for coming on the show, man. This was really, really illuminating. Thank you both so much for having me, and thank you to everyone that takes the time to read the book. That was Isaac Fitzgerald right here on Livewire. His memoir, Dirtbag, Massachusetts, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Phyllis Fletcher of Seattle, Washington, and Ann Sue of Portland, Oregon. Phyllis and Ann are part of the Livewire member community. They are generously supporting our program with a donation each month, which is really big deal to us because it allows us to keep doing the program. So that makes it a huge deal. So a huge thanks this week to Phyllis and Ann for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask the listeners a question. And in honor of Isaac Fitzgerald's deep misunderstanding of what Chuck Palahniuk was going for (laughs) with Fight Club, and I guess David Fincher, who directed it, uh, we asked listeners to tell us something that they completely misunderstood as a young person. Elena, you have been collecting these responses. What are you seeing? Okay, this one, I totally had the same misconception, the same misconception that Tim had. Tim says... When I was a kid, I thought artists sang their songs live on the radio. I thought they came in once an hour to sing their songs at the station (laughs) so people could listen to them. I was always impressed at how they managed to sound the same every time. 
And I remember I thought, I told my babysitter that I couldn't believe that Cyndi Lauper could play Rick D's American Top 40, which I knew was recorded in Los Angeles, and then come to the Charleston, South Carolina radio station later in the day to play Shebop again. <laughs> my babysitter was like, uh. I feel like you were already preparing for your life as a somewhat itinerant, somewhat performative writer, oh. where you were just like, the logistics of this make no sense <laughs> to eight-year-old Elena Passarello. How, is she, how can she be in these two places at such a close amount of time? I mean, I, I guess it just really proves that I grew up in a house without a lot of records in it. <laughs> like, mm. I probably would have figured it out if, if that had been the case. I was too busy, just hunched over my radio, ready to switch it from the pop station to the Christian music station because I wasn't really allowed to listen to non-Christian music. So I was mm. never at ease while listening to Cyndi Lauper or anybody else. I was down there like <laughs> ready to change the station at a moment. If I heard my dad coming down the stairs. Aww. Uh, all right, what's another misconception one of our listeners had as a young person? Um, <laughs> Phil says, I grew up thinking Watergate was some kind of big dam. I guess it was just <laughs> damn big. <laughs> hey. Phil. <laughs> Rim shot. Yeah. I could totally see that as a kid just because you would hear the word Watergate so much. And if you missed the part about it being, a, I guess, a hotel slash you know, office complex, and there was no internet, presumably at this time, for right. this young person. So, yeah, once that story gets in your brain that it's just some kind of aqua feature. Yeah. You could really carry that around for a while. And I bet kids today are very confused. Whenever there's a controversy, we just add gate to the end right. of it. Like, I wonder if they think that's some kind of, like, etymological, like, mm-hmm. Latinate kind of suffix. But really, it's just this hotel thing that we associate. Right, like, if it would have been at the Holiday Inn, we would call everything in right. at the end. <laughs> right. What's something else that one of our listeners was a bit confused about when they were young? I love this one from Susie. Susie says, as a little girl, I always thought the universal remote could actually control the entire universe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Susie must be much younger than than I am because yeah. I still think that universal remote is kind of fancy. Like I remember that coming out, I want to say like in my 20s or something and just or maybe that was just the first time I saw one and I was like, "Wow, how'd they do that?" I feel like it's always advertised and few houses had it. So it like of course you wouldn't have a universal remote at your house, but if you, you know, went mm-hmm. to if you had the kind of family who shopped at whatever Circuit City, yes. then you could get when you went to your like friends whose family were a little fancier than yours, they might have that universal remote or something. Okay, one more uh, listener response before we get out of here. Okay. Um, this I've saved this one just for you. Ashley says, I thought condominium was a bad word because it had the word <laughs> condom in it. <laughs> I would have absolutely had that thought as a kid. Had I ever heard the word condominium, I would have assumed that that was something that was very fresh, as my mom would say. My mom was always describing things as fresh. As fresh. Maybe that's why we say condo, just to make it a mm, little less, uh, right. more PG. Take out some of the prophylactic <laughs> connotations. <laughs> well, thank you to everyone who sent in a response to our question this week. Uh, we're going to have another question for next week's show, which we will reveal in just a bit. So stick around for that. In the meantime, this is Livewire Radio. Let's invite our next guest onto the show. She's been featured on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and was crowned the winner of 2019's New York Comedy Club Contest, which was shortly before she joined us on stage in Portland, Oregon at the Alberta Rose Theater. That was back in 2020. Take a listen to this. It's the very funny Carmen LaGala right here on Livewire. Thank you so much. Wow, thank you. 
I, uh, I'm feeling a little weird right now. My mom figured out how to use Facebook Messenger recently, which, yeah, I didn't know she could do that because this is the same month she printed an article off of the internet and mailed it to me. Pretty big leap through time for Renee. She uh, felt like that scene in Jurassic Park where the raptor figures out how to use the door handle. Oh, clever girl. All right. <laughs> this is the message she sent to me. She thinks I'm not getting enough nutrients from our son's rays. So she sent, Carmen, make sure you're getting the D. <laughs> I was like, my mom is cool. Nice. She's a cool lady. She's a, she's a Christian lady. She believes in God. She likes to throw the sayings at me. She'll be like, let Jesus take the wheel. I'm like, he never drove. His blood is wine. That's a DUI. That's reckless, <laughs> reckless advice. Uh, I, I don't believe in God. I do believe in aliens, though. <laughs> One of those cool people. Uh, I don't think they're on Earth yet, though. Although sometimes you see people walking around, right? Portland, you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> what? No way. I have friends who think that crop circles were caused by aliens. This is my favorite kind of person, because you got to believe then that aliens are losers. <laughs> that they made it here, and that's their first choice. They're like, oh, we made it to Earth. What should we do? One of them's like, um, why don't we go into the agriculture? Make some shapes and some, some patterns? Huh? <laughs> I, I had to look up what caused crop circles because I was, I was like, what is it though then? And I found out it started in England with two guys just pulling pranks. Just a fun time for them. They did it for years. They didn't tell anyone until about 10 years in. One of them had a wife that thought that he was cheating on her. <laughs> I was like, I've been cheated on. That is way worse. Oh. <sighs> like you come home, you're like, where have you been night after night for so many years? Is it Susan? He's like, oh my God, no, you're going to laugh. <laughs> Classic misunderstanding. No, I've just been going into the field with Doug to, to bend corn. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? Are you with Doug? I don't... So confused. I spend so much time on the internet. It's, it's a lot. I also, I love the WNBA. It's women's basketball. <laughs> like, yeah, like, it's awesome. I love it so much. So here's what I've been doing in my free time. It's the off season. Uh, I've been going onto the WNBA Instagram page and policing the comments. <laughs> it's like a volunteer position. Hold your applause. I, because what you'll find in there, a lot of young men who hate women. They hate women's basketball and they just talk trash in there. And I've made it my job to talk trash back at them on a personal level. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard. They didn't privatize it. They're all from New Jersey. You just go in and they, they're like, women suck at basketball. And I'm like, well, learn how to land a kickflip, you little It doesn't, doesn't have to be clever, just accurate. And I took it, I took it very far a couple weeks ago. I went and there was this one kid, he kept posting, uh, make me a sandwich on every single post. And I would have let it go, but he was spelling sandwich wrong. So I got really mad. I took screenshots of that, went into his Instagram, saw he had a girlfriend, sent her the screenshots. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I don't know. And yes, yeah, job, a lot of free time with comedy. And 
she didn't respond. She, she just had like a single question mark. And I was like, oh my God, that is weird. I should probably say what I mean. I was like, ah, yeah, sorry. It's uh, he's someone that you loves being mean to women online. <laughs> Thought you should know. She did not respond. So I clicked on her Instagram, saw that uh, she doesn't graduate high school until 2023. <laughs> oh no. I feel like I did the right thing, but on the other hand, I'm like, who am I that I'm just barging into her DMs? Like, what are you doing with him? You should break up. He's immature. I'm 34, so. <laughs> should listen to me. Felt very creepy, felt very creepy about it. So I checked up on both of them two days later, and they deleted all of the pictures of each other. I was like, oh, I broke them up. <laughs> The power. Yeah, did you know you can make a difference in this world? <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Uh, I don't know what sport uh, you're a fan of, but what are you doing in the off season, huh? Are you breaking up children online? That's what I'm willing to do for the New York Liberty. I don't get how you parent right now in, with the internet the way it is, because you gotta, you gotta teach your kids about weirdos on the internet, but then like, am I making it into the conversation? <laughs> Parents are like, no, you got to watch out. These people are creeps and weirdos. They're going to send you pictures. They're, oh, no, there's so much out there that you don't even. Also, there's going to be this lady. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she just wants what's best for you. So <laughs> don't respond. Just listen to what she has to say. So it's good. I love the internet. I love TV. I keep watching true crime. Big fan. Big fan of the genre. Are we true crime fans? <laughs> Three people. Nice. I... I'm such a big fan of true crime. They say that people keep telling me, they're like, women, women, women love true crime. I'm like, well, it keeps happening to us. So more of a keeping tabs thing at this point, right? <laughs> it's crazy because guys will still have the audacity to be like, women don't watch sports. I'm like, we binge watch the most dangerous sport of all. That's what true crime is. Just the stakes are higher. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, did your ball go out of bounds? <laughs> Um, Kelly's been missing for three weeks. She is the most out of bounds. All right, my name is Carmen. You guys are so great. Thank you so much. Carmen Lagala, everybody. That was Carmen Lagala, recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland back in March of 2020. You can find her on Twitter at Carmen Lagala. That's L-A-G-A-L-A, at Carmen Lagala. And I'm at Luke Burbank, here with at Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we will hear some music from No No Boy. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we hear some music, 
we got a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to writer and director Laura Chin, who's got this amazing memoir out. It's called Acne. Uh, in it, she sort of manages to balance some very dark stuff. She had a pretty challenging childhood with some really funny, very biting humor. She talks about happiness, love, loss, Scientology, having very oily, active skin. Then we've got some stand-up comedy from uh, a Livewire favorite, Mohanad Elsheki, who's going to tell us about his most embarrassing Uber ride ever. I'm going to say it might be one of the most embarrassing Uber rides anyone has experienced, so you're going to want to tune in for that. Then we're going to round things out with some music from Jenny Conley, who you might know as one of the founding members of the Decemberists. She came on stage and she played us some music from her latest album, Tides, Pieces for Accordion and Piano, and it was just absolutely beautiful. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know about something that took up a ton of brain space when you were a teen that you no longer think about at all now. I wanted to say acne on the subject of Laura Chin's book, but I still think about it. I think for me it was the Lemonheads. <gasps> the band with Evan Dondo or the candy? I thought about him a lot. <laughs> Did you ever think of the Lemonheads while eating Lemonheads? Probably. Yeah, yeah it was a uh, Evan Dando was like my Tiger Beat teen crush for sure. How about Alexander the Grape? Did you ever mess with the Alexander the Grape? Did they have that down in the Carolinas? No. That was like from the same candy family that the Lemonheads were from. Oh, okay. But it was never made flavor. it to the grunge band. They never, <laughs> not that I know of at least. If you've got uh, an answer to that question, what's something that took up a ton of brain space for you as a teen that you don't think about too much, you can uh, submit those uh, responses on Twitter or Facebook. We're at LiveWire Radio. Our musical guest this week is a songwriter and scholar born in Nashville, Tennessee. Julian Saperiti has created the project No No Boy. He did this while he was transforming his doctoral research on Asian American history into concerts and albums and films. His latest album as part of the project, 1975, was released through Smithsonian Folkways, and it's been hailed by NPR as one of the most insurgent pieces of music you will ever hear. Take a listen to this. It's Julian Saperiti, a.k.a. No-No Boy, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. What, uh, what song are we going to hear? We're going to close this show with a, a song called Boat People. Uh, the Boat People were folks uh, from Vietnam, Southeast Asia, who after the fall of Saigon or the reunification of the country, depending on your point of view, uh, they were fleeing re-education camps, um, had they been on the wrong side of the war, uh, death in some cases, and almost a million of these folks uh, had to get out of you know their country, the only country that they'd ever called home because of this fear of death, not unlike a lot of folks from Central America or the Middle East these days, uh, in Europe even, the Ukraine, they were just refugees, and about a million of these people got on these rickety little fishing boats meant for a crew of 10, and it stuffed 200 folks onto, onto these boats, just, just anything to get out. About half of those people died on the bottom of the South China Sea. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a history that's too big. And, and we teach history too big, I think. You know, just whether it's dates, 1975, or a million people, or, um, you know, 200 people even. So this story, like a lot of my songs, tries to go into history from a personal level, uh, a level where... We just take one story. This is, this is almost verbatim, the, these lyrics I heard on an old Canadian broadcast um, 
back in the 70s, one of these boat people, a Dr. Tran, and yeah, his story is worth a movie, but uh, you'll have to settle for a song tonight. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much for having us. It's called Boat People. Yeah, thank you. This is No No Boy on Livewire. Forty years ago, the doctor left on a boat. He'd never seen the snow or felt it in his hand. Sail until you see dry land. I can't get off the news. I can't get off my floor. The good folks go inside when we need you most. What do prayers do behind locked doors? Twan went back to rebuild, only to watch Saigon fall. Now he climbs a Mont-Royal He makes a life in Montreal Donated winter coats And Barbie dolls I wrap myself in books They're talking about this band I linger on bell hooks She helps me to understand Some of this ain't new No man Fourteen hours by car Just to shake the cops But mom had to stay back A Chinese safe house and Covered tracks Eighteen meters long Two hundred bodies full A simple compass and a map Forget Ferdinand or Captain Cook. Bodies bobbing in a rough South China Sea. Came across a Thai pirate ship. Scavenging Rip the doctor from his kids Bleeding And I was undergone Then tossed into the water He swam back to his son 
appetite to his daughter Drifting through the night As the daylight broke A mountain in the dawn Off the Malaysian coast so hard or so long I can't get off the news I can't get off my phone my mother came here too that was 40 years ago so if you see somebody's cold You give them a cold That's not our boy That was No No Boy right here on Livewire His latest album, 1975, is available right now via Smithsonian Folkways. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. Huge thanks to our guests, Isaac Fitzgerald, Carmen LaGala, and No-No Boy. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Paige Thomas. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Tanvi Kumar is our production fellow. And Yasmin Median is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamfrom Charitable Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Anne Sue of Portland, Oregon, and Phyllis Fletcher of Seattle, Washington, who also happens to be a member of the Livewire board. If you want more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.